Book 6, Chapter 32 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Moulbach. Josephine. Fouché did not hesitate. He followed his guide down the little staircase, along the dark corridor and up another short staircase. He had recognised the voice and knew that his leader was no other than Josephine, the wife of the First Consul. Through the secret door at the end of the corridor they entered a small and gloomy antechamber, exactly like the one which adjoined the cabinet of the Consul, and from it Josephine ushered Fouché into her cabinet. You will say nothing to Bonaparte about this secret way, Fouché, said Josephine with a gentle, supplicatory tone. He does not know of it. I have had it made without his knowledge while he was in Boulogne last year. Will you swear to me that you will not reveal it? I do swear, madame. God knows that I have not had it made out of curiosity to overhear Bonaparte, continued Josephine. But it is necessary sometimes for me to know what is going on and that when the general is angry, I should hasten to him to calm him and turn aside his wrath. I have warded off many a calamity since this private way was opened, and I have been able to overhear Bonaparte. But what have I been compelled to listen to today? Oh, Fouché, it was God himself who impelled me to listen. I was with him when you were announced, and I suspected that your visit purported something unusual, something dreadful. I have heard all, Fouché. All I tell you, I know that his life is threatened, that fifty daggers are directed toward him. Oh, God, this perpetual fear and excitement will kill me. I have no peace of mind, no rest more. Since the unhappy day when we left our dear little house to live in the Tuileries, since that day there has been an end to all joy. Why did we do it? Why did we not remain in our little Luxembourg? Why have we been persuaded to live in the palace of the kings? It is proper for the greatest man in France to live in the house where the departed race of kings once had their home, replied Fouché. Oh, yes, sighed Josephine. I know these tricks of speech with which you have turned the head of my poor Bonaparte. Oh, you, you, his flatterer, you who urged him on, will bear the blame if misfortune breaks in upon us. You have intoxicated him with the incense of adulation. You poured into his veins daily and hourly the sweet poison which is to destroy our happiness and our peace. He was so good, so cheerful, so happy, my Bonaparte. He was contented with the laurels which victory laid upon his brow. But you continued to whisper in his ear that a crown would add new grace to his laurels. You flattered his ambition, and what was quietly sleeping at the bottom of his heart, and what I hushed with my kisses and with my hand, that you took all efforts to bring out into the light. His vanity, his love of power. Oh, Fouché, you are wicked, cruel and pitiless. I hate, I abhor you all, for you are the murderers of my Bonaparte. She spoke to all this softly with quick breath while the tears were streaming over her beautiful face and her whole frame trembled with emotion. She then sank wholly overcome upon a lounge, and pressed her small hands, sparkling with jewels, over her eyes. Madame, you are unjust, replied Fouché softly. 
If you have overheard my conversation with the First Consul, you are aware that the direct object of my coming was to save him from murderers and to ensure his precious life, and moreover to pour into his ear the poison of a future imperial crown, said Josephine indignantly. Oh, I know it. With talk of conspiracies and of daggers you urged him on. You want him to be an emperor, that you may be a prince or duke. I see it all, and I cannot prevent it, for he no longer listens to me. He no longer heeds the voice of his Josephine, only that of his ambitious flatterers. And he will put on the imperial crown and complete our misfortune. Oh, I knew it. The imperial crown will ruin us. It was prophesied to me in my youth that I would be an empress, but it was added that it should be for no long time. And yet I should like to live, and I should like to be happy still. You will be so, madame, said Fouché with a smile. It is always good fortune to wear an imperial crown, and your beautiful head is worthy to bear one. No, no, she cried angrily. Do not try me with your flatteries. I am contented with being a beloved and happy wife. I desire no crown. The crowned heads that have dwelt in the Tuileries have become the prey of destruction, and the pearls of their diadems have been changed to tears. But what advantage is it that I should say all this to you? It is all in vain, in vain. I did not bring you to talk of this. It was something entirely different. Listen, Fouché, I cannot prevent Bonaparte's becoming an emperor, but you shall not make him a regicide. I will not suffer it. By heaven and all the holy angels, I will not suffer it. I do not understand you, madame. I do not know what you mean. Oh, you understand me very well, Fouché. You know that I am speaking of King Louis the Seventeenth. Ah, madame, you are speaking of the impostor who gives himself out to be the orphan of the temple. He is it, Fouché. I know it. I am acquainted with the history of his flight. I was a prisoner in the conciergerie at the same time with Toulon, the Queen's Lord Servant. He knew my devotion to the unhappy Marie Antoinette. He entrusted to me his secret of the Dauphin's escape. Later, when I was released, Talian and Barat confirmed the story of his flight and informed me that he was secreted by the Prince de Conde. I have known it all, and I tell you I knew who Kleber's adjutant was. I inquired for him after he disappeared at the Battle of Marengo, and when my agents told me that the young king died there, I wore mourning and prayed for him. And now that I learn that the son of my beautiful queen is still alive, shall I suffer him to die like a traitor? No, never. Fouché, I tell you, I will never suffer it. I will not have this unfortunate young man sacrificed. You must save him. I will have it so. I? cried Fouché in amazement. But you know that it is impossible, for you have heard my conversation with the consul. He himself said, the Republic demands a royal victim. If it is not this so-called King Louis, let it be the Duc d'Angéon, for a victim must fall in order to intimidate the royalists and bring peace at last. But I will not have you bring human victims, cried Josephine. The Republic shall no longer be a cruel mouluk, as it was in the days of the guillotine. You shall, and you must, save the son of Queen Marie Antoinette. I desire to have peace in my conscience, that I may live without reproach and be happier, perhaps, than now. But it is impossible, insisted Fouché. 
You have heard yourself that if, before the sun goes down, Louis be not imprisoned, the sun of my good fortune will have set. And I told you, Fouché, that if you do this, if you become a regicide a second time, I will be your unappeasable enemy your whole life long. I will undertake to avenge on you the death of the Queen and her son. I will follow your every step with my hate, and I will not rest till I have overthrown you. And you know well that Bonaparte loves me, that I have influence with him, and that what I mean to do I accomplish at last by prayers, tears and frowns. So do not exasperate me, Fouché. Do not make me your irreconcilable enemy. Save the son of the king whom you killed. Conciliate the shades of his unhappy parents. Fouché, we are in the cabinet of the queen. Here she often tarried. Here she often pressed her son to her heart and hast God's blessing on him. Fouché, the spirit of Marie Antoinette is with us, and she will know it if you in pity spare the life of her son. Marie Antoinette will accuse you at the throne of God and plead with God to show you no compassion if you refuse to be merciful to her son. Fouché, in the name of the Queen, on my knees, I implore you, save her son. And Josephine, her face bathed in tears, sank before him and raised her folded hands suppliantly to Fouché. The minister, deeply moved, pale with the recollections which Josephine awakened within him, stooped down to her and bade her rise. And when she refused and begged and threatened and wept, his obstinacy was at last touched, or perhaps his prudence, which counselled him to make a friend rather than an enemy out of the all-powerful wife of the future emperor. Rise, madame, he said. What mortal is able to resist your request since Bonaparte himself cannot? I will save your protégé, whatever shall come to me afterward from it. She sprang up and in the wildness of her joy threw her beautiful arms around Fouché's neck and kissed him. Fouché, she said, I give you this kiss in the name of Queen Marie Antoinette. It is a kiss of forgiveness and of blessing. You swear to me that you will save him? I swear it, madame. And I swear to you that as soon as he is saved and Bonaparte's anger can no longer reach him, I will confess all to my husband and put it in such a light that Bonaparte shall thank and reward you. Now tell me, how will you save him? I shall only be able if you will help me, madame. I am ready for anything that you know well. Tell me what I shall do. You must yourself direct a few lines to the young man, conjuring him in the name of his mother to fly, to save himself from the anger of the First Consul, to leave Europe. Oh, Fouché, how sly you are, said Josephine sadly. You want my handwriting in order to justify yourself to the first consul in case of emergency. Very good. I will write the billet. She hastened to her table, dashed a few words upon paper, and then passed the note to Fouché. Read it, she said. It contains all that is necessary, does it not? Yes, madame, and you have written it in such beautiful and moving words that the young man will be melted and will obey you. Will you now have the goodness to put the note in an envelope and to address it? She folded it and put it into an envelope. To whom shall I address it? she then asked. Address it to King Louis Seventeenth. She did so with a quick stroke of the pen and handed the letter to Fouché. Take it, she said. It is your justification. 
and in order that you may be entirely secure, she continued with a slight smile, retain this letter yourself. What I would say to this young man, I would rather communicate by word of mouth. How? cried Fouché. You want to see and speak with the king, she said sorrowfully, to beg his forgiveness for myself and Bonaparte. Hush, do not oppose me. I am resolved upon it. I want to see the young man. But he cannot come here, madame, here into the very den of the lion. No, not here, into the desecrated palace of the kings, she answered bitterly. No, he cannot come here. I shall go to him. You are jesting, madame, it is impossible. You, the wife of the first consul, you will, I want to fulfil a duty of gratitude and of loyalty, Fouché. In my heart, I still feel myself the subject of the Queen. Let me follow the call of my heart. Listen, my courage stands ready. I was intending to drive to my friend, Madame Talian. I will take a pleasure drive instead. In the Bois de Boulogne, I will cause the carriage to stop, send it away and return on foot. You will await in there with a fiacre and take me to the king. It shall be so, said Fouché. You shall be my law. I only ask that you hasten, for you know well that I have much to do today. I shall take advantage of the time to procure for the young man the necessary passports for travel. But, madame, you must help him leave the city, for you know that the gates are all closed. I will tell Bonaparte that I am troubled to be in the city, now that it is so shut in. I will drive out to saint Cloud. His carriage can follow mine, and if the gatekeeper puts hindrances in the way, I will command him to let Louis pass. Now, let us hasten. An hour later, Josephine, after demissing her equipage with the servants, entered the fiacre which was waiting for her near the fountain. Fouché received her there, and was unwearied in his complaints of the poor carriage which the wife of the first consul must use. Josephine smiled. My dear sir, she said, there have been times when I should have been very proud and very happy to have had such a fiacre as this, and not to have been compelled to walk through the muddy streets of Paris. Let it be as it is. The present days of superfluity have not made me proud, and I have a vivid recollection of the past. But tell me, Fouché, whither are we driving, and where does the young king live? We are driving, if you graciously approve of it, to my house, and I have brought the young man there, for in his own house he is no longer safe. I have had it surrounded by agents of the secret police, with orders to arrest him on his return. He will, of course, not return, and it will be easier to assume the appearance that he received an intimation of his peril and escaped in season. But here we are before my door, and if you will draw the thick veil which haply you have fastened to your bonnet carefully before your face, I hope that no one will see that the most beautiful lady in Paris honours my house with her distinguished presence. Josephine made no reply to this flattery, but drew the black lace veil closely over her face and hastened to leave the fiacre and entered the house. Fouché, she whispered as she ascended the staircase, my heart beats as violently as it did when I drove to the Tuileries to be presented to Marie Antoinette. It was the first time that I spoke with the Queen of France. And now, madame, said Fouché with a smile, you will speak with the last king of France. Does he know who I am? No, madame. I have left it to you to inform me. Here we are at the saloon. He is within. Wait only a moment, Fouché. 
I must collect myself. My heart beats dreadfully. Now, now you may open the door. They entered the little saloon. Josephine stood still near the door, and while she hastily removed her bonnet and the thick veil and handed them to Fouché, her large, brilliant brown eyes were turned to the young man who stood in the window niche, his hands calmly folded over his breast. In this attitude, with a calm look of his face, the gentle glance of his blue eyes, he bore so close a resemblance to the pictures which represented Louis XVI in his youth that Josephine could not repress a cry of surprise and hastened forward to the young man who now advanced out of the window recess. Madame, he said, bowing low before this beautiful and dignified lady, whom he did not know, but whose sympathising face made his heart tremble. Madame, doubtless you are the lady whom Monsieur Fouché said I might expect to meet here. Yes, I am she, replied Josephine, with a voice trembling with emotion, her eyes flooded with tears, all the while being fixed on the grave, youthful face which brought back so many memories of the past. I have come to see you and to bring you the greetings of a man whom you loved, who revered you, and who died blessing you. Of whom do you speak? asked Louis, turning pale. Men called him Toulon, whispered Josephine. Queen Marie Antoinette turned him Fidel. Fidel, cried Louis in a tone of anguish. Fidel is dead, my deliverer. He, whose fidelity and bravery released me from my dreadful prison? Oh, madame, what sad thoughts do you bring back with his name? Josephine turned with a triumphant look to Fouché, who was still standing behind her in the neighbourhood of the door. Her look said, you see, he is no traitor, he has stood the proof. Fouché understood the language of this look perfectly, and a smile played over his features. Then Josephine turned again to the young man. You did not know that Toulon was dead, she asked softly. How could I know it, he cried bitterly. I was taken at that time to a solitary castle where I remained several years, and then I went to Germany, and from that time I have always lived in foreign parts. Since I have been in Paris, I have made the effort to learn something about him, but no one could inform me and so I solaced myself with the hope that he had really gone to America, for that was his object, as the other gentleman who assisted me in my release informed me at that time. This other gentleman, said Josephine softly, was the Baron du Chachet, and the child who was carried into the temple was the, the son of the Comte de Frotte, rejoined Louis. Fouché, it is he, cried Josephine, it is the son of my noble, unfortunate Queen Marie Antoinette. Oh, sire, let me testify my homage to you as becomes a subject when she stands before her king. Sire, I bow my knee before you, and I would gladly pour out my whole life in tears, and with each of these tears beg your forgiveness for France, for us all. And the beautiful, passionate Creole sank upon her knee and raised her tearful eyes to the young man who, Perplexed and blushing, gazed at her, then hastily stooped to her and conjured her to rise. No, sire, she cried, not until you tell me that you have forgiven me, that you have forgiven us all. I forgive you? What have I to forgive in you? Monsieur Fouché, who is this lady who knows me and my destinies and who brings me greetings from Fidel? 
What have I to forgive in her? Who is she? Tell me her name. Monsieur, said Fouché, slowly approaching, this lady is... Hush, Fouché. I will tell him myself, interrupted Josephine. Sire, when your beautiful, exalted mother was still living in Versailles, I had the honour to be presented to her, both at the grand receptions and at the minor ones. One day it was already in the unhappy reign of terror, when the Queen had left Versailles and Trianon and was already living in the Tuileries. I went thither to pay my respects. That is to say, madame, cried Louis, you were a brave and loyal woman, for only the brave and the loyal ventured then to go to the Tuileries. Oh, speak on, speak on. You wanted to pay your respects to the Queen, you were saying. She received you, did she not? You were taken into the little saffron saloon? No, sire, the Queen was not there. She was in the little music hall, and, because at that time etiquette was no longer rigidly enforced, I was allowed to accompany the Marchioness du Tourzel into the music room. The Queen did not notice our entrance, for she was singing. I remained standing at the door and contemplated the wondrous picture that I saw there. The Queen, in a simple white dress, her light brown, slightly powdered hair concealed by a black lace headdress, sat at the spinet on which her white hands rested. Near her, in the window niche, sat Madame, engaged with her embroidery. Very near her sat, in a little armchair, a boy of five years, a lovely child with long golden locks, with large blue eyes and looking like an angel. The little hands surrounded by lace wristbands leaned on the support of the chair, while his looks rested incessantly upon the countenance of the Queen and his whole child's soul was absorbed in the gaze which he directed to his mother. The Queen was singing, and the tones of her soulful voice resound still in my heart. The song was this, Dors, mon enfant, close ta poupière, Tes crimes déchireront le cœur. Dors, mon enfant, ta pauvre mère, A bien assez de sa douleur. And while she sang, she turned her head toward her son, who listened to her, motionless and as if enchanted. See, cried Madame, the sister of the pretty boy, I believe Louis Charles has fallen asleep. The child started up, and a glowing redness suffused his cheeks. Oh, Teresa, he cried, how could anyone go to sleep when my mamma queen was singing? His mother stooped down to him pressed a long kiss upon his brow, and a tear fell from her eyes upon his golden hair. I saw it, and involuntarily my eyes filled. I could not hold back my tears, and went softly out to compose myself. Sire, I see you still before me, this beautiful queen and her children, and it is with me today as then. I must weep. And I, oh my God, and I, whispered Louis, putting both his hands before his quivering face. Even Fouché seemed moved. His lips trembled and his cheeks grew pale. A long pause ensued. Nothing was heard but the convulsive sobbing of the young man who still held his hands before his face and wept so violently that the tears poured down in heavy drops between his fingers. Sire, cried Josephine with a supplicatory voice, Sire, by the recollection of that hour, 
I conjure you, forgive me that I now live in those rooms which Marie Antoinette once inhabited. Oh, it has not been my wish, and I have done it only with pain and grief. Believe me, sire, and forgive me that I have been compelled to live in the palace of the kings. He took his hands from his face and gazed at her. You live in the Tuileries? Who are you? Madame, who are you? Sire, I was formerly Viscountess Bouranet. Now I am the wife of the first consul, exclaimed the prince, drawing back in terror. The wife of him who is pursuing me, and who, as Fouché says, means to bring me to the scaffold. Oh, sire, forgive him, implored Josephine. He is not wicked, he is not cruel, but circumstances compel him to act as he does. God himself, it would seem, has chosen him to restore with his heroic sword and his heroic spirit peace and prosperity to this unfortunate land, bleeding from a thousand wounds. He was the saviour of France, and the grateful nation hailed him with peons, and full of confidence laid the reins of government in his hands. Through his victories and his administration of affairs, France has again grown strong and great and happy and yet he is daily threatened by assassins. Yet there are continual conspiracies whose aim is to murder the man to whom France is indebted for its new birth. What wonder that he at last, to put an end to these conspiracies and these attempts upon his life, will, by a deed of horror, inspire the conspirators with fear. He is firmly resolved on this. The lion has been aroused from his calmness by new conspiracies, and the shaking of his mane will this time annihilate all who venture to conspire against him. Sire, I do not accuse you. I do not say that you do wrongly to make every attempt to regain the inheritance of your fathers. May God judge between you and your enemies. But your enemies have the power in their hands, and you must yield to that power. Oh, my dear, unfortunate, pitiable Lord, I conjure you, save yourself from the anger of the First Consul and from the pursuers who have been sent out to seek you. If you are found, you are lost, and no one in the world will then be able to save you. Fly, therefore, fly, fly while there is still time. Fly, cried the young prince bitterly, evermore fly. My whole life is a perpetual flight, a continuous concealment. Like the wandering Jew on this journey from land to land, nowhere can I rest, nowhere find peace. Without a home, without parents, without a name, I wander around, and like a hunted wild beast, I must continually start afresh, for the hounds are close behind me. Well, be it so, then. I am weary of defying my fate longer. I surrender myself to what is inevitable. The First Consul may send me as a conspirator to the scaffold. I am prepared to die. I shall find that peace in death, at least that life so cruelly denies me. I will not fly. I will remain. The example of my parents will teach me how to die. <gasps> Speak not so, exclaimed Josephine. I have pity on me. Have pity on yourself. You are still so young. Life has so much for you, yet there remains so much for you to hope for. You must live not to avenge the death of your illustrious parents, but to make its memory less poignant. Son of kings, you have received life from God and from your parents. You may not lightly throw it away, but must defend it. 
for the blessing of your mother rests upon your head, which you must save from the scaffold. You must live, said Fouché, for your death would bring joy to those who were the bitter enemies of Queen Marie Antoinette and who would be your mocking heirs. Will you grant to the Count de Lille the uncontested right of calling himself Louis XVIII, the Count de Lille who caused Marie Antoinette to shed so many tears? Prince flamed up at this, and his eyes flashed. No, he cried, the Count de Lille shall not have this joy. He shall not rest his curse-laden head upon the pillow with a calm consciousness that he will be the king of the future. My vision shall disturb his sleep, and the possibility that I shall return and demand my own again shall be the terror that shall keep peace far from him. You are right, madame. I must live. The spirit of Marie Antoinette hovers over me and demands that I live, and by my life avenge her of her most bitter enemy. Let it be so, then. Tell me, Fouché, whither shall I go? Where shall the poor criminal hide himself whose only offence lies in this, that he is alive and that he is the son of his father? Where is there a cave in which the poor hunted game can hide himself from the hounds? Sire, you must away, away into foreign lands. The arm of this first consul is powerful and his eagle eye scans all Europe and would discover you at any point. You must for the present find a home beyond the sea, said Fouché, approaching nearer. I have already taken measures which will allow you to do so. There are ships sailing southward from Marseille every day, and in one of these you must go to America. America is the land of freedom, of adventures and of great deeds. You will there find sufficient occupation for your spirit and for your love of work. It is true, said Louis with a bitter smile. I will go to America. I will find a refuge with the savages. Perhaps they will appoint me as their chieftain and adorn my head with a crown of feathers instead of the crown of gold. Yes, I will go to America. In the primeval forest with the children of nature, there will be a home for the exile, the homeless one. Madame, I thank you for your sympathy and your goodness, and my thanks shall consist in this, that I subject myself wholly to your will. You loved Queen Marie Antoinette, a blessing on you and all who love you. He extended both his hands to Josephine, and as she was about to press them to her lips, he stooped toward her with a sad smile. Madame, bless my poor brow with a touch of those lips which once kissed the hand of my mother. Josephine did as she was asked, and a tear fell from her eyes upon his fair hair. Go, sire, she said, and may God bless and protect you. If you ever need my help, call upon me, and be sure that I will never neglect your voice. An hour later, the wife of the first consul drove out to Saint-Cloud. At the corner of the Rue Saint-Anor, a second carriage joined her own, and the young man who sat in it greeted Josephine deferentially as she leaned far out of the carriage to return his salute. At the barriers, the carriage stopped, for the gates of the city were still closed. But Josephine beckoned the officer of the guard to her carriage, and fortunately he knew the wife of the first consul. It is not necessary, said Josephine with a charming smile, it is not necessary that I should procure a permit from the first consul to allow myself and my escort to pass the gate. You do not suppose that I and my secretary, who sits in the next carriage, belong to the villains who threaten the life of my husband. The officer, Enchanted with the grace of Josephine, 
bowed low and commanded the guard instantly to open the gate and allow the two carriages to pass. And so the son of the Queen was saved. For the second time he left Paris to go forth as an exile and an adventurer to meet his fate. End of chapter 32 Read by Julie Jackson, Staffordshire, 7th of July, 2021